Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 23. I am going to send an angel before you and to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to him. Do not defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion for my name is in him. But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow and worship to their gods and do not serve them. Do not imitate their practices. Instead, demolish them and smash their sacred pillars to pieces. Serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will remove illness from you. No woman will miscarry or be childless in your land. I will give you the full number of your days. I will cause the people ahead of you to feel terror and will throw into confusion all the nations you come to. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and retreat. I will send hornets in front of you and they will drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hethites away from you. I will not drive them out ahead of you in a single year. Otherwise, the land would become desolate and wild animals would multiply against you. I will drive them out little by little ahead of you until you have become numerous and take possession of the land. I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. For I will place the inhabitants of the land under your control and you will drive them out ahead of you. You must not make a covenant with them or their gods. They must not remain in your land or else they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare for you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. It is good to be back doing this standing up. Uh, we got through it. <laughs> Thank you for your prayers. Now, I'd just love for you to pray for humility for me because I'm in that stage of recovery where starting to feel better, and so I'm really tempted to do things that I should not do. So I do not want to re-injure it, so just pray that I stay nice and humble for the next four weeks or so, full recovery, don't want to be back in the boot. So would love, love for your prayers there. Also, let me, by way of adding encouragement for the women's retreat, let me speak to the men in the room. Men, here is what you can do. Do whatever you need to do to make it so your wife can go. If you need to take days off work, if you need to make arrangements for babysitters, if you need to make arrangements for feeding your kids, whatever it may be, take care of all of that so that she can go. And so she can be present for two days. Don't uh, be calling her every 10 minutes with an emergency because you don't know how to do X, Y, Z. Hey, hop on YouTube and figure it out. Whatever you need to do so that she can go, she can experience some time away with the, the women of our church and be blessed in that, uh, this, this is your pastoral instruction and encouragement to do that. Well, if you haven't opened your Bibles uh, to Exodus 23, please do so. Uh, the title of my message this morning is The Way of blessing. So something that we all have in common in this room, no matter where, what, what your faith system is, no matter what you believe, we all want to experience good. We all want to experience success. We all want to experience a sense of thriving and flourishing. We want to experience emotional and spiritual and physical health. In other words, we want to experience blessing. Uh, that is something that we desire in our hearts. 
And sometimes there is a gap between desire and reality. The things that we want, the blessing we desire, is not necessarily fully our reality. And oftentimes we have to push through. We have to push through the challenges. We have to push through wherever there's shortcomings. And for most of us, for many of us, we're able to do that and we experience measures of blessing. Other times we experience disappointments and we can even become cynical. And there can be at times where we we think of this notion of experiencing good in life, blessing in life, as something that's so far out of reach, why even bother? But even if you are there, there is a part of you that still wants to experience blessing. You may be cynical. You may have decided that it's not attainable, so why bother? But the reason you're in that place of self-pity is because there's a part of you that longs for it, part of you that desires it, part of you that believes that it is true and can be true. We desire blessing. We desire good. We desire flourishing. We are hardwired for those things. But we have to ask this question, how are we defining blessing? How are we defining what is good? How are we defining what is flourishing? When we think about the good that we want, when we think about what it means to experience wholeness, how are we defining those things? And in that, how are we running at it? What are we doing in order to experience blessing? How are you living your life in order to experience what you think is good, what you think is flourishing? Our world has a definition of blessing. Our world will tell you how to get that. Be self-centered. Be self-reliant. Chase your own happiness and freedom no matter what anybody else says. There is a, a sense in which our world centers self as the definition of flourishing. If I get what makes me happy, if I get what I want, if I can have a sense of personal autonomy and freedom, then I'm good. I've achieved. I've I've gotten to that place of wholeness and flourishing and happiness. Our world defines the, the method by the way that it defines sort of the goal. If the goal is personal freedom, if the goal is personal autonomy, well, then the methods are you chase that and you don't let anybody stand in your way. You don't let anybody tell you what, what makes you happy. You don't let anybody define who you are, your identity. Don't let anybody define your sexuality. Don't let anybody define how you spend your time, your money. Don't let anybody define your relationships. No, you define that on your own. Self-definition, self-reliance, self-centeredness. Our text this morning gives us a different vision. Our text this morning holds out a picture, a way of blessing that actually challenges what often lives in our hearts. Our text this morning challenges this notion that blessing comes through self-reliance and self-definition. Our text this morning challenges this idea that happiness is achieved by personal autonomy and freedom. Because our text this morning says the way to blessing is a way of obedience. Here's here's the main point, here's the the thrust of this passage that is going to drop in our laps and is going to challenge us in multiple ways. It's this, that blessing comes through the obedience of faith. So when we think about how to experience blessing, when we think about the definition of blessing that we have set for ourselves, Exodus 23 is going to define those things through the obedience of faith. Now, if you've been with us this fall, and if you are one who pays attention to detail, 
you may have noticed that we just jumped over two and a half chapters. We left off last week at the end of chapter 20, and now we are picking it up at the end of chapter 23. So let me explain why by setting some context for the end of chapter 23. So this fall, and we'll conclude next week, we have been focusing on chapters 19 through 24 in the book of Exodus. And these chapters sort of form an arc within the book. It's a covenantal arc. These are the chapters in which we see God entering into a covenant with his people. And so back in chapter 19, we read how God came to the people and said, I'm going to enter into covenant relationship with you. And the people were like, yes, that sounds like a great idea. We will do whatever you, you command us to so that we can be in covenantal relationship with you. And then the Lord calls the people to himself. And so the people gather after they had, they had cleansed themselves, they had sanctified themselves, they come to the base of Mount Sinai, and then the Lord descends on the mountain, sets it on fire, he meets, it, meets with them, and then what does he do? He gives them his word. He lays out the terms of the covenant. And so the majority of this fall, we have been walking through the Ten Commandments, which are the moral foundation of the law, of the covenant. These are the moral principles by which the people of God were to live. And then when we get into chapters 21 through the first part of 23, what we get is specific case law. This is the Lord applying the moral principles of the Ten Commandments to specific situations and specific ways that Israel was to live. And so in the Ten Commandments, we get the moral principle that is true no matter who you are, no matter where you live, and no matter what time that you live in. And then in 22, 21 through towards the end of 23, we get what is specific application for the people of Israel. So the reason we're jumping over those chapters is because a lot of what is dealt with was specific to them. Now, we could get inside that and unpack and see that there are moral principles, but we've largely covered those in the Ten Commandments. And so those were specific to Israel. And as we get, you go further into the first five books of the Bible, you get into Leviticus and you get into Numbers and Deuteronomy, you will see other parts where there is law given, specific case law given to Israel that was application of moral principles for them. And this is what, how a covenant document functioned. At the beginning of a covenant, you had the covenant Lord coming to the people saying, we're going to enter into a covenant. Here's what it means to keep covenant. Here's what obedience means. And so that's what the Lord has been doing from the Ten Commandments towards the end of chapter 23. He's laying out a vision. This is what it means to be obedient. This is what it means to be my holy people. This is what it means to follow me as a nation. Then when we get to the end of chapter 23, here's what we come to. At the end of every single covenant document, after the stipulations and the, or the, the requirements have been laid out, comes a promise of blessing and also a promise of judgment if you break the covenant. So chapter 23, Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33, function in this way. After God has laid out what, will, what, what is obedience, he brings the promise of blessing. He says, if you obey, here is what is going to happen. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And in this passage, the judgment is more implied than directly stated. If you go towards the end of Deuteronomy, you'll see both blessings specifically stated and judgment specifically stated. So what God is stating here at the end of chapter 23 is, if you want to experience the blessing of covenant, if you want to experience all the blessing of what it means to be my people, 
then you need to be obedient. And I promise you that in your obedience, there will be blessing. I promise you, in obedience, there is going to be a thriving and a flourishing. Because I promise you, what I am up to in the world is about thriving and flourishing. So God holds out this vision for them, calls them to obedience by promising blessing. And then they set out from the mountain. And so we'll, we'll see from 24 to the end of the book of Exodus, God is going to instruct them in how they are to set up their, their worship system and their worship structure, and we'll, we'll see that early next year. But the instruction here that is coming to them is, hey, you're going to break camp, and you're going to head towards the promised land. They didn't arrive at the mountain. They weren't just going to build their, their city. They weren't going to build their, their nation there. They were going to actually move to the promised land. And so what the Lord does here in verse 20 is he gives them first instructions in obedience as they're going to set out. As you are continuing in the wilderness, this is what he tells them in verse 20. I am going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. So as you continue through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, I'm going to send an angel I'm going to, that is going to go before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. This is a reference to the promised land. Now, this reference to an angel is important because it's a callback first to Exodus 3. If you remember all the way back last year when we looked at Exodus 3 and the, the famous burning bush story with Moses, Exodus 3 says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush and called out to Moses. Then in Exodus 14, we also read that the angel of God went before the people in a pillar of fire and a cloud and that he, would lead, he was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and then when they came to the Red Sea, the, the angel actually moved behind them to protect them from the army. So what is interesting about the mention of angel in the book of Exodus it is not an angelic being as we often think of, a messenger from God. When it refers to an angel in the book of Exodus, it's actually referring to the presence of the Lord himself. So when he says, I am sending an angel, my angel, he is referring to my presence, the very presence of the Lord. And notice how he equates himself with the angel, how God equates himself with the angel. Be attentive to him and listen to him. Do not defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion for my name is in him. But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. So the Lord equates the angel's words with his own words. Carefully obey and do everything I say. So he says, carefully obey him and do everything I say. This, this phrasing, this phraseology, carefully obey carefully listen and, and obey everything I say. This is repeated constantly throughout the Old Testament. And it's a, it's a phraseology meant to emphasize obedience to the Lord himself. So this turn of phrase that God is using here signals that this angel is not just some messenger. It's not just some go-between. It is actually the Lord himself. To listen to this messenger is to listen to the Lord. To disobey this messenger is to disobey the Lord. Now, you also see here, he will not forgive your acts of rebellion. So this angel has the authority to forgive or not to forgive. 
to forgive or to judge. Who has that authority? Only God. And what this is a reference to is not that there is no possibility of forgiveness for the people of Israel, but he's referring to the fact that if you disobey, if you defy, if you go into rebellion, there will be judgment. And we see this play out in the Old Testament. God's people, Israel, they turn from listening to the Lord and they're judged for it. So there are multiple ways in which this, these verses here are trying to emphasize that the angel here is the very presence of God. And why does this matter? Because the Lord is emphasizing, I am with you. Like, I have not abandoned you. I didn't bring you out of Egypt, and then I said, okay, I'll see you in the promised land. Hope you get there soon. No, he's with them every step of the way. He is protecting them, and he is leading them, and he's going to bring them in. Just as he brought them out of Egypt, he's going to bring them into the promised land. He's with them. And he's emphasizing this obedience because he doesn't want them to forget. Hey, you know that pillar of fire that you're following? That cloud that you're following? That voice that comes out of the fire and comes out of the cloud? That's me. That's me. So don't defy it. Don't disobey it. Don't mistrust it. No, follow it. Because my presence is with you. Be obedient to me on the way through the wilderness. And this was important for Israel to remember because if you're familiar with their history, while they're in the wilderness, they're not very good at being faithful. Like they find excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse to not trust the Lord, to defy the Lord, to take matters into their own hands, to try to control things for themselves rather than trusting in the provision of God. Over and over and over again, rather than choosing the blessing of obedience... They decide they'll choose blessing and chase blessing on their own. Rather than choosing the obedience of faith in which they could thrive in the Lord, they decide we're going to define this ourselves. We're going to define what it means to thrive. We're going to define what it means to chase blessing. And in that, they experience the Lord's judgment. What is so sad about this is here the Lord is offering them the promise of flourishing He's offering them the promise of blessing if they will obey him. And one of the things that the Lord also promises them is that he's going to fight for them. Verse 22 says, For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites and the Hethites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. So when Israel gets to the land to take it, The Lord is going to fight for them and defeat their enemies. And this is an important piece of this passage because what this points to is how the blessing that the Lord promises Israel in their obedience is caught up in something greater that the Lord is up to in the world. Now, when we read about the conquest, it's very easy for us to think about the conquest of Israel going into the promised land and, and fighting these people who were there and wiping them out and driving them out. It's very easy for us to think about this through the lens of our own modern geopolitical situation. It's easiest for us to think through the lens of our own experiences of war or our history as a nation with war rather than allowing God's word to shape what is going on here. We need to look at this through theological lenses not modern geopolitical lenses. What is God up to? 
when he brings Israel to the promised land, when he's going to bring them to the promised land, and he's going to drive these people out. Well, to understand that, very briefly, we need to step back to the book of Genesis, no surprise. (laughs) In the book of Genesis, we read that God creates the world, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he dwells with humanity. He dwells with Adam and Eve in the garden. God's presence in the garden. The garden is painted not only as a garden, but it is also the picture that is painted is that of a temple, God's dwelling place. And what happens when Adam and Eve sin? What is one of the judgments on them? They're kicked out. Why? They're kicked out of the presence of God because God cannot be in the presence of sin. They had corrupted God's temple. They had corrupted the garden. And so they are driven out from the presence of God. They're driven out from the dwelling place of God, a place that was good and full of flourishing. And so we we see the trajectory of time go forward in the book of Genesis, and then we come to the book of Exodus. God redeems a people. And what is God's purpose in redeeming those people? To dwell with them, to be their God. They're going to be his people. And what does God do in order to dwell with them? He not only cleanses them, but he is going to cleanse a place for them to dwell with him. So why does God, what is up with the conquest of the promised land? What is going on? Why does Israel have to go in and drive these people out and go to war and eliminate the people that are there? Because sin needs to be driven out of the land. Sin needs to be removed because God is going to dwell in the promised land with his people. God goes to war with those people because God's going to war with evil. God's removing those people from the promised land because he's removing sin and wickedness from the place he is going to dwell. God is establishing a new Eden. So he calls his people to go to war because he is at war with evil. But the promise here is that God is going to be the one at war. God is going to drive them out. God is going to fight their enemies. And the emphasis in verses 27 through 31, is all on what the Lord is going to do. I will cause the people of Hadidi to feel terror. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and retreat. I will send hornets in front of you. I will drive them out. I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. I will place the inhabitants of the land under your control. The emphasis here is not Israel going to war, but God going to war. Now, yes, Israel in obedience to the Lord, went and went to war. But who is fighting the battle first and foremost? God. Why is he doing this? Because evil is a big deal. God is not indifferent to evil. God does not minimize the way evil has wrecked and ruined this world. And in this example of the promised land, we see a microcosm of what God is up to in the world overall. He's dealing with evil. He's cleansing the world from evil. He's bringing renewal. And he's bringing his renewed people to come and dwell with him. And so here's the question that we have to wrestle with. Because I know just even in that short little explanation, it doesn't remove all the tensions and all the questions of the conquest. But here is the thing we have to come to grips with. Are we okay with God being at war with evil? Like, do we know and believe that that is a good thing? Do we want God to be at war with evil? Like, do we want God to do something about the evil that is in our world? Do we want him to renew this world? 
Do we want him to defeat it and overthrow it? Because friends, the only way that we're going to experience blessing and flourishing and goodness and righteousness is if evil is dealt with. We, we don't get to just sort of hand wave it away and put little hallmark roses on it. No, evil is real and it is serious. And if we are going to experience any measure of blessing in this world, it has to be dealt with. And here we see a picture of how serious God intends to deal with it. This is how serious God is about blessing people. This is how serious he is about blessing his people. How serious he is about ultimately blessing the world. He goes to war with evil. But it's not just that God is going to defeat those nations. Israel was to be a holy people as well. They were to be obedient themselves in dwelling in the land. Israel doesn't get a free pass. No, they are, in, they are to be obedient as well. In verse 24, the Lord says, Do not bow down and worship to their gods and do not serve them. Do not imitate their practices. Instead, demolish them and smash their sacred pillars to pieces. When Israel went into the land, they were not to follow those practices. If there was any infrastructure, any statue, any altar, any, anything that, that, that pointed to the false worship of another god, Israel was to destroy it, to remove it, to cleanse the land from it. Get this false worship out of God's dwelling place. Let there be no place for sin. Let there be no place for false worship. And why are they to do this? Well, the Lord tells them in verses 32 and 33. You must not make a covenant with them or their gods. They must not remain in your land or else they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare for you. See, God knew Israel's heart. God knew the weakness in their hearts. God knew that if they left the infrastructure of these false idols and these false gods, that Israel would be drawn away. And they were. Like if you know the story, you know the history, they were. Israel was not fully obedient to driving the people out and smashing down all their false structures of worship, and they eventually are drawn away. See, it's not just that God cleanses himself, but he calls his people to be part of that as well. He calls his people to walk in the obedience of that. He calls his people, give no place to false worship, give no place to idols, give no place to sin in your heart. I am cleansing the world. I am cleansing you. And so give yourself to that cleansing project. Walk in the way of obedience, and there you will experience the, the way of blessing. So God calls them to obedience while they are in the land, and he promises blessing. Verses 25 and 26, Serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and water. I will remove illnesses from you. No woman will miscarry or be childless in your land. I will give you the full number of your days. Now, it can be very easy to go, whoa, did, did, did God just go prosperity gospel on us? Like, if, if we're obedient, does that mean that I'll never get sick? No. No. As both the rest of Scripture and human history have shown. So what is the point here? What is God highlighting here? Because he's, he's promising blessing, a physical kind of blessing, and there is a reality in which obedience to God does bring physical blessing. It does bring emotional blessing. It, there is a wholeness that we experience when we walk in obedience. 
But what these picture, what God is emphasizing here is several things. One, there's a picture here when he's emphasizing you're not going to, you won't um, be ill or you won't miscarry. He's talking about, hey, listen, you guys aren't going to die off. When you get to the land, you're going to multiply, you're going to flourish, you're going to be strong in number. If you are obedient to me, you are going to grow as a people, both in number and in strength. And what is going to mark your society overall is health. That doesn't mean that every single person is going to experience the blessing exactly the same, but what is going to mark Israel overall is health and flourishing and growth. There is going to be more success in childbearing than not. The, the bread and the water that they, this is talking about their food and their provisions, there's going to be plenty, there's going to be enough, you're going to be satisfied, you're going to flourish in these things. Now we know that this is an absolute because we see within the, the rest of the Old Testament and even in the law itself, there are provisions for those who are in need and those who are lacking and those who are sick and those who experience death. Like there's provisions for these still these broken places in the world and broken experiences that people had even in Israel. But God said, what is going to define you? Blessing, wholeness, flourishing, even in the midst of living in a fallen, broken world. This also, this also points to the ultimate renewal that God is going to fulfill. When God ultimately undoes the curse, when there is going to be no more illness and no more sickness, when there is going to be no more losing a child in, in labor, so there's a promise here, not only for the flourishing and the blessing of Israel as they live in the promised land, but there's also a foreshadowing for an even greater flourishing to come, a greater renewal to come. So the Lord, here at the end of kind of laying out the covenant, is telling Israel, listen, this whole covenantal relationship we're, we're, we're in what I am up to here is about something profound because this is about renewal. The renewal of you and the renewal of the world. But God is highlighting that this redemption that Israel is caught up in, being belonged to the people of God, means caught up in God's eternal redemptive purposes. This isn't just some nice, neat, cool, we're in relationship with God. No, this is, we are part of God's mission. We are part of God's people. God is up to something beautiful and profound and eternal, and we are part of it, and we get to experience it. How? Through the obedience of faith. The renewal, the blessing, the flourishing, the good, the righteousness, all that God intends to bring to this world, we can experience through the obedience of faith. Israel was given this promise, given this blessing, because God is that good. God is that gracious. God is that loving that we would be caught up in something bigger than just ourselves, that we'd be caught up in God's eternal purposes. Now, it can be easy to think, wow, nice story. Isn't that cool? Well, in one sense, it didn't all turn out as we would hope, as we know, Israel blew it a lot and they messed it up, but that didn't mean that God still wasn't faithful. But what does this have to do with us? We're not Israel. We're not on our way to the promised land as they were, so to speak. 
We weren't in slavery to Egypt, literally. Like, the, the literal circumstances of this story are not our literal circumstances. So what does this have to do with us? We could go, okay, God called Israel to be obedient. That was good for them. How do we apply this for us? What does this have to do with us? Well, I want to argue everything. Everything. Before I explain, let me just lay down a couple principles here very quickly. First, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul does this thing where he relates the experiences of Israel in the Exodus and their wilderness wandering to the church. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 11. Now, these things, he's referring to the stories and the things that happened to Israel, specifically in the Exodus and their wilderness wanderings. They happened as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Let us not test Christ as some of them did. Don't grumble as some of them did. These things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So Paul highlights specifically Israel's disobedience by saying don't be like them. These stories were written down for our instruction, for our example. So there is a sense that we learn from their example. We learn what to do and what not to do in the light of God's grace from Israel. So there are instructions for us. But did you, did you also notice there's a detail that Paul wrote that seems just a little bit out of place. Let us not test Christ as some of them did. Now, if you go back and you read through the Exodus and you read through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you will not see the word Christ. You will not see the word Jesus. Jesus as we know him does not show up in the Old Testament, it show up in these stories, at least as we would conceive him to. to. So what is Paul saying? How, how is it that they could test Christ if, if he's not there in the sense that we think he would be there? Well, Paul is alluding, and Paul, Paul is alluding to these stories, but he's also saying, hey, while there's not a direct reference to Christ, he's certainly there. While Christ may not be there in the sense that we may think he is, he is certainly there. He has always been there because all of Scripture points to Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, it record, the Gospel of Luke chapter 24 records that, that Jesus, after his resurrection, he, he meets with a group of disciples. And, and these disciples, man, they're reeling from the events of the past few days. Like they had put their faith in Christ as the Messiah, and so they had all this hope in Jesus, and then Jesus was crucified, and so all their hopes had kind of been shattered. And now there was talk of Jesus being resurrected. And they're like, I, we don't know what to make sense of all of this that this just happened. And so they meet Jesus. And Jesus responds to all of their confusion by highlighting, hey, the reason you're confused is because you don't understand God's word. This is what Jesus says to them. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Beginning with Moses. This is a reference to the first five books of the Bible, which Exodus is a part of. The books Paul references in 1 Corinthians 10, he's referring to the books of Moses. So listen, 
The stories are for our instruction, as the Apostle Paul highlights. But what does Jesus highlight first and foremost? Is that these stories are ultimately pointing us to what God is up to in the world through Christ. All of these stories are pointing us to what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. So as much as these stories are for our instruction about what not to do and what to do, all of that is in response to the bigger story of what God is up to in redeeming and restoring and renewing. So we see in these stories how we are to behave in light of what God is doing. This is what it means to walk in the obedience of faith. We respond to what God has done, what God is doing through faith and through obedience. That God is on a great rescue mission to rescue and redeem sinners. We respond through the obedience of faith. That God is on a great mission to renew all things and defeat evil forever and cleanse and renew and restore his creation. We respond to that good news through the obedience of faith. And so these stories are for our instruction But these stories are to point us to what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. And the entire infrastructure of these verses, of of Exodus 23, 20-33, there's an entire infrastructure here that just screams Christ. It just screams the person and work of Jesus. The angel of the Lord, God's presence, manifested physically, leading guarding, protecting, speaking to the people of God? Does that not point us to how Jesus showed up, God in the flesh, God in the son, God the Son showing up? And what did Jesus do when he came? He spoke. He spoke God's word to us. And what did God say about Jesus? He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to everything he says. And what does When Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father, what does he say? I and the Father are one. I and the Father are equal. The Father's name is in me, so to speak. And so Jesus equates himself with God, and he speaks with the authority of God. He forgives sins with the authority of God. He carries the glory of God. And then what does it also say in John 14, 3? What does Jesus say he's going to do? He's going to prepare a place for us. Hello, verse 20. Just as the angel prepared a place for Israel, Jesus has gone and prepared a place for his people. All that the angel does in these verses, Christ has done and Christ has fulfilled. And then when Jesus came, what else does he do? He comes and he defeats his enemies and our enemies. In the most counterintuitive way possible, he comes and he dies on a cross. But what does he do when he dies on a cross? He actually defeats sin. He defeats evil. He defeats death. So Jesus is the great warrior who comes and fights for his people and he defeats their enemies. And then as we're going to see next year, next fall when we go through the book of Revelation, so excited to do this, we're going to see that when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as a humble carpenter. No, he is coming back with flames in his eyes and a flaming sword in his hand to come and defeat evil once and for all. Jesus is not some weak, sort of milquetoast, passive guru No, Jesus is the eternal conquering king who has defeated our enemies. This is what God is up to through Jesus Christ. This is the renewal that Jesus has brought and will bring. And in light of all of that, what is our response to be? Is our response to keep chasing blessing and goodness and righteousness through our own means? 
Like in light of what Christ has done, does it make sense that we would live our lives for ourselves? That we would just carry on chasing after our own happiness and our own freedom as if those are the ultimate good and the greatest thing we can live for? No, not by a long shot. In light of what Christ has done, in light of who Christ is, ours is to respond just as God called Israel to respond. Obey. Respond through the obedience of faith. Now listen, this is so important for us to catch and understand. All of this, none of this, I should say, none of this is anything that we've earned. Like We don't earn this blessing. We don't deserve it. We are rebellious sinners who in and of ourselves are turned away from God and chase after false gods and false idols. We live for ourselves. We're selfish. We deserve judgment. So none of this is something that we have earned. No, it's God in his grace has come to us. God in his grace has come to bring healing and restoration and renewal and forgiveness because he's a loving and gracious God. If he gave us what we deserved, we'd all experience judgment for eternity. But no, God has come, Jesus has come to save. Jesus has come and he has accomplished victory. What it is for us to do is to turn from our sin and turn to him in faith. Turn from our sin and follow him as Lord. Turn from our sin and be obedient from a place of faith, not a place of earning, but a place of saying, Jesus, you are glorious. Jesus, you are worth it. Jesus, what you have done, I want to give my life to you. So we turn in faith, and in that faith we walk in obedience. And here's the good news of the gospel, that when we turn from our sin in faith and walk in the obedience of faith, we experience forgiveness. We experience freedom. We experience the power of the Holy Spirit renewing us. And yes, we're still like Israel in the wilderness. There is suffering, there is pain, there is hardship. But in all of that, God is with us. He's gone before us. He's protecting us. And he's preparing a place for us. And the hope that we have is that by the power of the Spirit, we are being renewed. We are being transformed. We are day by day, bit by bit, becoming more and more like Jesus. We are becoming a bit more healthy, a bit more holy, a bit more renewed. And so we live in this hope. We live we walk in obedience because we have that hope. And so church, so often, so often when we want to emphasize grace, we can treat obedience like a four-letter word. Like we get afraid of talking about obedience. And here's, here's what's this tension that we live in. If you belong to Christ, the good news is the power of the gospel is at work in your life. The spirit is at work in your life and he who began a good work will complete it. So those are promises. Hold to those. But also listen and I want you to hear me. So often we walk around not experiencing blessing. Why? Because we're not walking in obedience. We are not walking in obedience. We are not experiencing the fullness and the blessing of God because we have divided hearts. Rather than being like Israel was to smash those idols, get rid of all of that false belief, get rid of the selfishness, get rid of the pride, get rid of whatever would compete for our affections for Christ. Rather than doing that, we hold on to it. And we play around, we play this little dance of like, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I'll take a little Jesus over here, but then, you know, I want to hold on and I want to be in control myself. I want to live for my own wants and my own desires. I want to be selfish when I want to be selfish. And so we live with divided hearts and friends. When we live with divided hearts, we miss out on the fullness of what God has for us. Now, if you belong to Jesus, you better believe he's going to break through that pride. 
He's coming for you. He loves you. He's not going to leave you there. But why fight him? (laughs) Why fight him when we can turn in the obedience of faith and let him bless us? Let us experience the goodness of what he has for us. Through the obedience of faith, we experience blessing. But there's one more piece of this that I want to emphasize, and we'll close. Church, God is up to a powerful, powerful, powerful redemptive work in our world. He's not just saving us and then just kind of, oh, I'm going to pull you out of here one day and just kind of, and don't care about the world. No, God is at work in this world. The kingdom of God is advancing in this world. The ultimate end of history is a renewed world. God cares about the evil, the brokenness, the pain, the suffering in this world. He's not abandoned it. He's not going to discard it. He's going to renew it. And he is in the process of renewing it. And so as his people, we are called to fight evil because God is at war with evil. We as his people are called to bring down and smash and destroy anything that sets itself up as above the Lord. Now, our weapons, as scripture tells us, are not guns and bullets and knives and swords and tanks. We don't fight spiritual warfare with physical means. But we do fight. The weapons of our warfare are the word of God in prayer. We fight by walking as in, in righteousness, in goodness, and bringing that righteousness and bringing that goodness to places where there is brokenness in our world. We care about what is happening in our communities. We care about what is happening in our nation, in our world. We don't sit back and go passive. No, where there is evil, we confront it. Where there is injustice, we confront it. We, we go to war with evil because God is at war with evil. We join God in this renewal mission because God is renewing all things. So First City Church, one, are you walking in the blessing of the obedience of faith? Again, don't hear me. I'm, I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel where everything is just automatically going to be awesome for you and everything's going to go well for you and you're going to have perfect health. But I'm talking about are you experiencing the renewing power of the gospel in your life? Are you experiencing the joy that is in Christ when we are obedient to him? Are you experiencing all the good that God has for you in your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, in your relationships, in your community? Are you experiencing the blessing that God has promised when we walk in obedience to him? Or is your heart divided? Is your heart divided? And in that division, man, you're just... It's like you're smacking yourself up against a wall and it's just constant frustration and constant failure and constant defeat. God has more for you. God has promised blessing when we walk in the obedience of faith. And also, do you care about what's happening in our world? Do you look at the evil and the suffering and injustice around you and you go, my God is against that. Jesus has come to defeat it and he has defeated it and he will defeat it. And so as his disciple, I'm going into the dark and broken places of this world and I'm going to fight it. I'm not going to be indifferent to it. I see the trajectory of history and where we're ending up and I'm going to be a part of that. By the power of God, by the weapons that he has given me, I am going to fight this war. I'm going to join him. That's what we are called to, church. 
We're called to it in different ways. We each have our own ways of doing that. We each have our own responsibilities. We each have our own calling. But we are all called to do it in some way. So here at the end of Exodus 23, here where God, after God has laid out his word, laid out a picture of what it means to be obedient to him, he lays out a picture and a hope for blessing. That obedience is not just something that has no effect, but it has effect. Obedience brings blessing. God is in the work of bringing blessing to this world. God is in the work of restoring Eden to this world. God is up to something powerful and beautiful. So church, let us live in the good of that. Let us experience the good of that through the obedience of faith. Let's pray.